Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock and Murat Verdi, our two official sponsors. Murat Verdi, uh, who is from Turkey, how cool is that? He uh, became a sponsor a couple of weeks ago, but I've been out of town and I had already recorded all the show intros for the last couple of weeks, and so I didn't get a chance to thank him until now, but thank you so much. It's fantastic that we have now two official sponsors. More about how to become an official sponsor and more crucial membership news coming up in just a moment. But first, the show is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show for the last four and a half years. They've provided me that theme music, which is incredibly kind of them. This is their 10th year together as a band, and they are having a huge 10th anniversary celebration in the 10th month of this year here in New York City. So please go to respectsextet.com, find out about that 10th anniversary show, and find out about all their incredible records, which are absolutely worth your time and money. Please go buy their albums and let them know the Jazz Session sent you. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo four and a half years ago. He did it for the uh, whopping sum of zero dollars, and uh, I'm, I'm hugely grateful to him for making the show look good. And Dave is online at twitter.com slash DaveVrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. And now, I've been gone, as I said, for two weeks. So the last two weeks of shows that you listened to, I didn't really give you much in terms of live numbers on the membership campaign because I didn't know when I recorded those intros a couple weeks ago what those numbers would be, of course. So I can now tell you that we are at 80 members as I record this uh, in the evening on August 7th, and you're now listening to it sometime during the day, probably on August 8th or thereabouts. 80 members is where we sit right now, and before I tell you what we need and when we need it by, let me thank all of the people who have become members uh, since I went out of town. It's a it's a long list, and that makes me very, very happy. Uh, the pianist Dan Tepfer became a member. He's been on the show. Just go to thejazzsession.com and look in the archives. Uh, it's on the left-hand side of the page for Dan Tepfer. Thanks to Adam Downey from Northern Spy Records, whose band Juclo Duo has been on the show. Go find them. Thanks to Chris Monson, uh, another international member, uh, uh, which is fantastic. Thanks to Cynthia Herbst. Thanks to Andrea Wolper and Ken Filiano. Ken was just on the show in the last couple of weeks. Thanks to uh, Gabriel Gloga, who has been on the show before. You can uh, look for Gloga, G-L-O-E-G-E. Uh, he and his band, the Dymaxian Quartet, were on the show. Thanks to Rob Ewing. Thanks to Justin Smith. Thanks to uh, an anonymous member from Seattle. You know who you are. Thanks to Kyle Moffat. Thanks to Melissa Weber. Thanks to Eric Hancock. Thank you to Christopher Terry. And thank you most recently to Ben Allison. And Ben Allison has been on the show, and you can look for him in the membership section. Also, some donations have come in from folks, and uh, I do thank you for those very much. Just uh, you know, individual donations by people, which is uh, really wonderful, uh, a very lovely gesture. Thank you very much for that. And so now, as I mentioned, we're at 80 members. Today is Monday, the 8th of August. The 300th episode, by which I need 100 members, is Thursday, the 11th of August. And if you are good at math, you know that 11 minus 8 is 3, and that means you have 72 hours from now, if you're listening to this on the 8th of August, to become a member, and even fewer hours if you're listening to it after that, and possibly you might need a time machine if you're listening to it far after that. So please 
If you have ever thought about becoming a member of the Jazz Session, you can become a member for as little as 10 bucks a month, and I do not need a million dollars all at once, though I would take it. What I need are 100 sustaining members, 100 people who pledge at least 10 bucks a month every month from now for the foreseeable future to help keep this show going. And honestly, I need many more than 100, but if I can get to 100, that will at least make the show financially viable enough that I can keep doing it, and I really want to keep doing it. The uh, the outpouring of support, the fact that we've gotten to 80 members already, is an obvious indication that there are people who care about this show. If you're one of those people and you have not become a member, please, 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 please go to thejazzsession.com right now and join. It's super easy. Uh, you can become an official sponsor if you pledge at 50 bucks a month or $500 a year. You can pledge at $25 a month or $250 a year. And no, so I, just in case you're confused, I'm not saying that a pledge of $50 a month is equal to $500 a year. Obviously, that's equal to $600 a year. You can pledge in monthly or yearly sums. The monthly sums are $50, $25, or $10, and the yearly sums are $500, $250, or $110. So please, 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 please go to thejazzsession.com and become a member, Okay. There is there is no more time. There, there are no more. There's no more chances for me to, to ask you to become a member because the next show is either the the final one or the celebration, and I'm really hoping it's going to be the celebration, and that can only happen if you join now. Okay, so today's show is uh, with Taishan Sori, who most people know Taishan Sori as a drummer, but he plays piano, he plays trombone, and of course he's a fantastic writer, composer, thinker. Here's the deal. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, I announced that I had just interviewed Taishan Sori, and many of you faithful listeners wrote in to say, Fantabulous. I love Taishan Sori. I have wanted to hear an in-depth conversation with him. Bring it to me. And I said, You betcha, I certainly will. However, I erased it by accident. And I believe if you go to the Ingrid Lobrock episode of this show, uh, you will hear the story of the curse of Paradoxical Frog. And me erasing the Taishan Sori episode was the first example of that curse. And so uh, over the years since, I think it's been two years since I did that interview, I have received more emails about the Taishan Sori interview than about any other single interview in terms of asking for when is such and such an interview coming. And I have always had to say to people, I'm very sorry, I actually did do the interview, but I erased it and therefore you, you can't hear it, but someday I'll do it again. And finally, Taishan Sori moved from Fargo, North Dakota, or wherever he was living until now, to 20 blocks from my house in Brooklyn. And I managed to ride to his house without getting killed, despite the curse of Paradoxical Frog. I managed to sit down with him, and the recorder worked, despite the curse of Paradoxical Frog. And although I have actually not mixed the episode as I'm recording this intro, I have every expectation in the world that there will actually be audio there, and that I will in the next few moments begin to produce an episode and that now after this intro there'll be something for you to listen to and we will finally break the curse of Paradoxical Frog with an interview with Taishan Sori. Okay? So, uh, either what's going to happen in 10 seconds is I'm going to be right back weeping when I tell you that something happened and I lost the episode or you're about to listen to my chat with Taishan Sori. Let's hope it's the latter and in any case, here's some music to take us to the reveal about whether there's an interview there or whether I perhaps should never see any of those people again. Here we go. Music from Taishan Sori's album Koan, followed by something. Suspense. It's kind of exciting, isn't it? Go. Go. 
My guest is Tyshawn Sori. It's uh, it's great to have. I'll say have you back on the show, although no one's ever heard you on the jazz session. Right. You're one of the most requested guests on the jazz session, and you're also the only guest whose interview I ever accidentally deleted. So thanks for doing it again. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that was a that was quite a moment. In fact, I not only did I delete it, but I deleted it about 10 seconds after we finished the interview because I (laughs) recorded the intro to that show right then and I saved it over the show and it was just gone instantly and there was nothing (laughs) nothing I could do just one of those moments so it's it's great to finally have you here yeah it's great Um, I've interviewed uh, we won't just talk about uh, Paradoxical Frog but it just happens that I've interviewed Chris Davis and Ingrid and you in rapid succession right and I asked both of them the same first question so I'll ask the same question to you in the beginning which is about the use of space and uh, even more than just in Paradoxical Frog, I think that applies to you maybe more than either of them, uh, where you're just amazingly comfortable leaving lots and lots of space in your compositions, in your playing, both as a leader and a sideman. And I wonder if that's something that came naturally to you or if it's something you've had to work on as you've developed as a player. You know, it's something that came um, much later, actually, in my uh, entire career. In fact... Um, I have a release that's coming out on Pi Recordings in September, which is a completely different um, book of music um, in that the music is quite dense um, (laughs) in a lot of ways. Um, It's very dense, and there's all kinds of compositional schema uh, that are taking place throughout the entire uh, recording. So, And that music was composed between... 2002 through 2006, I'd say. Okay. And um, upon my trip to Japan in mid-2006, I'd say maybe um, around August of 2006, I went to Japan with this uh, Japanese piano player, Yayoi Kawa, who actually isn't far from (laughs) my residence, um, (laughs) where I'm living now in Brooklyn. Um, And when I went to Japan with her, I've experienced... um, quite a number of things there um that you know the concept of meditation and exploring zen further when i came back to japan i was even more interested in zen and started to study it and everything reading um books by alan watts dissects to taro suzuki um and a number of other people and um a lot of that stuff talked about uh, forming and the use of space and that kind of thing not necessarily you know musically in musical terms or anything but I wanted to apply some of these concepts to a lot of my own work and I think that was pretty much the transition period um, in terms of where my work was in the beginning because back then I was interested in exploring all kinds of concepts in terms of composition and yes I did use a large degree of space and things like that even in my improvisations for that other music you know that I was writing but then um, I started to apply it compositionally and it kind of all started with my um, permutations for solo piano which I guess one could say is a controversial work Um, it's on my first release and a lot of people didn't really know what to say about that you know (laughs) it's I mean it's basically 45 minutes you could say of basically the repetition of one chord but it's manipulated in all of these different ways 
um, the change in certain notes in different registers, and also um, the concept of Zen also helped me to explore um, the idea of limitation. And I was always interested in using limitation, especially since then, um, as a means for coming up with compositional material, or let's say exploratory material, in terms of improvising or whatever. So um, the thing that I was most interested in um, in terms of that is, okay, well, how do I work within this limitation? And, you know, what now, what conceptual parameter can I come up with in order to make this limitation interesting for me? And these were the two kind of things that I was working with uh, for that composition. So, I mean, even though it's basically one chord in terms of, you could say, quality or some um, from some kind of sonic quality um, where you have the same pitch information that's coming at you you're also having these many different ways in which sequential order is used um, you also have uh, registral shifts in terms of different pitches and that kind of thing um, you also have kind of an indeterminate amount of time when each chord happens. I mean, the piece can be performed in any tempo, but I usually prefer it to be played slowly because I think it gives more variation in terms of how the time passes between each um, execution of the chord and that kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, that was, I mean, I guess that was my first post-Japan composition and then after that I started to explore negative space uh, more and more and more and that kind of thing although I don't I'm not using the term negative is you know as the way we use it today right, it's uh, before. yeah it's yeah. not not in this case um, so basically that was the thing that um, that kind of started me in that direction and then as as the years kept progressing in 2008 I had the opportunity to um, premiere a larger work that I composed called Wu Wei um, which still has not been recorded yet or anything but um, I've performed it at Roulette and I think that composition kind of explored space but in a more extreme kind of fashion where there's a lot of there's a lot of silences in the music. There's a composition called Returns uh, for Piano Trio, which I hope to record at some point because I think, um, in my opinion, it kind of dismantles the idea of what a so-called jazz piano trio would sound like. I mean, like, I'm playing drums. Uh, Christopher Tordini, who's one of my key collaborators, was playing bass, and Corey Smythe um, was on piano, and it was the three of us who played that piece, and... Um, I have the score. I can show it to you, show it to you sometime. But basically, there are silences that are notated in the music, and the rule is basically for each page, um, to you know, each page must happen within five minutes. Now, if we decide to play the page super fast or anything, that means there's going to be like let's say four minutes of silence or something <laughs> right. like that you know so we we try to pace it you know correctly so that wouldn't so it wouldn't go to that extreme but at the same time that is allowed to happen in the music so um you know so basically um these kind of works you know they kind of evolve to where they are today like for example um homograph uh homograph one but it's titled homograph on the paradoxical frog record um but basically, this composition um, has kind of the same 
logic as permutations for solo piano, except um, you have an even smaller set of pitch information that's happening. And one could say it's more like a call and response kind of a thing, but I think it's what's happening here is that um, even though a person may have a pitch or something that has a certain kind of rhythmic value, if it is slightly differentiated the next time it happens again, how will a listener be able to discern the difference between the first sound and the second sound? And that was the thing that I was um, getting to, especially during these recent years, I'd say during the last um, two to three years, where I was exploring more the concept of, well, what does this note mean when it is notated in this way? And then if it's slightly differentiated in terms of the length and the, how the time passes on how this pitch sounds, um, how will the listener discern between these two events, even though they may sound the same? And so the concept of... Um, um, homophony, um, let's see, that's, that's, you know, it's a concept that's used in linguistics where, um, you may have, um, one example of this is when you would have a, um, set of words that sound the same, but they don't have the same meaning or something like that. Bored and bored. Yeah, exactly. Right. Something like this. So, um, now there's another concept of it, um, which, you basically have two things that are, I guess you could say that are, um, they, I mean, like this, this concept I'm actually exploring in traditional notation where, you know, you have two things that sound almost the same or something, but then they could mean the same event or, you know, or vice versa. So it's, it's kind of paradoxical in terms of how that works. Sure. Um, because, the use of space for me is also required in a composition like this where space, I mean, sound and silence for me is makes up the material of all music, in my opinion. And so um, to integrate both of those two, not necessarily in terms of there being a so-called rest or something like this, because I don't really see silence as being a rest period or something like that. I mean, that to me counts as much as the actual sonic musical material that's happening. And it allows for you know a different vibrational sensibility that you can bring to the music and that kind of thing and it also allows for uh, so-called indeterminate events and that kind of thing let's say if we were to perform a composition like homograph one in a noisy you know in a noisy kind of situation then what what then does i mean are we saying that we're going to rest? No, we're not going to rest in these silent periods or whatever. I think all of the sounds of the environment contribute to 
um, the composition holistically and the performance of the composition as well. I mean, I had a discussion in Vancouver just maybe um, about a week and a half ago or about a week ago where Chris Ingrid and I gave a workshop and a, per a gentleman in the audience had asked me, well, how do you employ the use of found instruments and that kind of thing? I mean, there was like a Pringles can and like some couple water bottles and like some chalk and I, f I forget what else that was there and mirrors and all kinds of stuff. And I made use of all of that stuff too. I mean, even during the so-called silent sections and that kind of thing, or if there's an opportunity for ensemble and interplay, I mean, I would go on and use all of those instruments because I think only responding to the music to me is kind of a narrow way of, performing at least in this context sure. where i'm allowed to make these kind of decisions um so let, let me break in on you to say uh you said before the thing about setting limitations does that apply to the way that you set up your drums too because I've, I've seen that you play in a, many different configurations and yep. in what many drummers might consider not limiting in the sense of missing anything but limiting yep. in the sense of a prescribed set of possibilities within which you have to work because of the way you set your drum well often i mean it, it would depend on the context of course but um normally sometimes i i've gotten into a phase where i guess you could say maybe in the last two years since i've stopped playing as regularly uh, as i used to before um making my move up to connecticut to attend wesleyan um since then i've gotten into setting up my equipment quote-unquote wrong <laughs> or something <laughs> like to where I am no longer interested in a comfort zone or a comfort area to explore a context. And so what happened was from gig to gig, I would always like set up in these kind of odd configurations or something like that. Like I saw you recently uh, with a snare drum that was triggered with a bass pedal. Right. right. Yeah, mm -hmm. so. yeah, for example, I mean, that kind of stuff. I mean, this stuff I didn't really explore too much until maybe two years ago where I said, well... Well, number one, I wasn't practicing as regularly as I did before. So that was the one thing. Um, the other thing, too, was that I was getting involved in creating a network of musicians um, who I didn't work with um, at the time before I came up to Wesleyan, but I wanted to kind of establish a new... Um, I don't want to say new because nothing's really new in my opinion, but... Um, I wanted to explore a different kind of way of dealing with my instrument that I did not get to explore before. And so a context like Paradoxical Frog allows me to do this. And even some of my own context, although I'm actually placing more of a so-called limit on myself uh, just because... Um, I don't know. I, I just I every From every gig, I always set the drums up differently. Sometimes I angle my cymbals higher... Or I set them up higher and then angle them um, a little bit more away from me or something like that. Because it presents a different kind of challenge. And it also gives me the opportunity to explore uh, sonic vocabulary that I never get to explore with other groups where I have to set up in the so-called traditional way. Uh, where, you know, where I would hit the drums in the traditional fashion. Whereas a context like Paradoxical Frog, even Fieldwork to an extent, and um, my own context, um, I try to have as broad a palette of possibilities to explore but with a so-called minimal setup or something like that i you know i um in my concert with john zorn that i did um maybe about a month ago i had a larger setup and everything and so i've employed that 
you know. So it's, it's there's all kinds of different things. So I, I guess it depends on the gig usually. So but. it sounds like it's uh, the the key to it is that it is a non dogmatic approach. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't like to um, to apply it as such. You know, definitely, um, especially in terms of the traditional notion of what it means to um, to to play a drum kit or something like that. I don't, you know, like, again, as I said, it would depend on the context. Um, something like the Steve Lehman Octet, for example, that that allows for me to achieve a certain kind of sound if I were to set up the drums a certain kind of way. Now, the way I physically approach the instrument can also vary depending on how the drums are tuned, for one, um, and two, um, what actually is happening in the music, just in terms of density or in terms of interplay, um, all this kind of thing. All of these things matter to me. So I apply that whole concept holistically and try to work um, within that within that frame. Sure. Know? Right. To play to play the drums using to play the drums with the Steve Lehman octet or with fieldwork or any other context in the same uh, fashion uh, with which I play, I think is. I don't like to do that because I, 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 I like to take chances in, you know, in whatever situation. And so I do have assigned ways of, you know, setting up my drum kit or what I actually use um, depending on the gig and that kind of thing. But also sometimes I like to get away from that and then apply it to something else. And I think it takes a lot of trust on the part of a band leader uh, for me to be able to pull something off like that. I remember doing another interview, maybe I could say about two years ago where a drummer um, on the composition on, on the Steve Lehman Octet record, a composition called Dub, um, why did I tune uh, the snare drum so low and everything like that? Because I figure, you know, I don't really want to disrespect what people in the so-called drum and bass genre do. I mean, you have like the crackling snare and then you have the cymbal and that kind of thing. Whereas I basically played the bell of the cymbal on my right hand and on the left hand I played a very low tuned uh, snare drum that was just above my main snare drum and um, a lot of people were like well why'd you do that and I was like <laughs> well I mean I, I just don't want to disrespect the continuum of the music I kind of wanted to do it my own way um, as opposed to trying to copy what you know somebody like a Jojo Mayer or Chris Dave or people like that do like I don't, I don't want to disrespect their work um, by doing that so and I didn't even I didn't even tell Steve that I was going to do that. <laughs> you know, I didn't I didn't make I didn't give him any indication that I would do anything like that. And he didn't mind at all because I mean because he knows that I I am interested in respecting the music on the level that it deserves to be respected. Sure. And so now, if he felt that I was disrespecting the music, then he would have told me that because him and I are quite close anyway. And two, I, we have a very long working relationship together. So, but it sometimes it really takes trust on the part of the band leader to be able to definitely pull something off like that. Yeah. And so, um, so in my context, you know, it, the same thing kind of applies in terms of my setup, where you know sometimes I don't even know like. Sometimes the the drums would just sit in the car for days, you know, for a number of days, and then I'll just pull them out and not even touch them, not even tune them or anything, and just play them like they are. Sure. You know, and uh, this is a concept that I guess sort of borrowed from this other drummer, Elliot Humberto Cavi, who 
Um, maybe I'd say, I don't know what he does now because I don't see him at all, but maybe 10 years ago, a good friend of mine was telling me, yeah, he never tunes his drums at all. He just lets them sit, you know, and, <laughs> but what I think it does, it really affects the music in such a way where he's able to execute the music in many, in manifold levels, I think, you know, so for me, that's the thing that's most interesting is to have the ability to do that and not fit into any comfort zone. Um, in terms of my setup, you know, now. So that's the thing that I've fallen into, at least for the past few years. a mentor or multiple mentors or some set of experiences you had that that kind of opened your mind you mentioned the Japan experience as one that's very recent but that opened your mind to thinking about music in these more expansive and less less dogmatic ways sure I've always um, I mean since since I was around the age of two and listening to a lot of different music I always kind of felt that but um, at the same time I did have some encouraging people who kind of encouraged to keep going in that direction because I'd say I wrote my first seven compositions around 2000 to 2001 and I wasn't at all happy with any of them. Um, I felt that I was basically repeating the same thing that I've heard, you know, a lot of the time and just in terms of aesthetically, at least. Um, I was basically, I felt myself falling into um, a method of composition that I was not only interested in exploring. I mean, I was interested in exploring many different aspects. Sure. And um, so upon my years in college, um, I have had some really, really amazing people uh, in my life. Uh, one of them is Peter Jarvis, who is a um, really excellent percussionist and um He's the founding member of the New Jersey New Music Ensemble. Uh, he was also um, he's also one of the directors, uh, um, or probably the director of the New Jersey Percussion Ensemble that was formerly uh, ran by Raymond DeRoche, um, who retired uh, from William Patterson. And he's also been um, both of these guys have been very influential to me, just in terms of exploring more expansive forms and. 
that kind of thing. Another musician I'll bring up is Kevin Norton, um, great drummer, composer, um, percussionist. And um, him and I, when we would get together at um, every lesson that I've had with him, all we would do is improvise most of the time. We would improvise or we would... Um, or we would just talk about compositional concepts and things like that, and he'd show me his work and that kind of thing, and we'd listen to it and I'd look at the score along with him. So my studies of Western art music, you know, I've studied a lot of it myself. Um, I didn't really have those kind of resources in high school and that kind of thing. I mean, there was concert band and that kind of thing, but there was nothing really... It's not quite the same. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not it's not the same thing, And you know, number one. And so... Um, so exploring this stuff on my own in high school through college and everything, I was able to basically, you know, and Charles Mingus is another primary influence on my work, even though he he wasn't a mentor of mine. He passed away before <laughs> right. I was, you know, even came up. But, um, but his work, um, along with the work of Anthony Braxton, who has later become a mentor for me um, and one of my musical fathers, I'll say, um, Let's see. Some, what I mean, about Mingus and Braxton resonates with you? Well, both of those two, I think they both dismantle the whole idea of what it means to be, um, of of what it means to be a musician. Period. Because, uh, for one, I don't see people like Charles Mingus or Anthony Braxton as jazz musicians. I mean, I don't. I do not see those two as such. Uh, nor do I see myself as as a jazz musician or anything. So, I'm basically. I basically f see myself as kind of following in that path of thinking, um, basically, is that the music that Charles Mingus wrote was for all kinds of different situations, and it employed um, a multiplicity of different musics. I mean, like, I mean, his music employed uh, gospel music, the blues, I mean, uh, so-called jazz. I mean, all kinds of different things are integrated into his work. Uh, the same goes for Anthony Braxton. Now, may, you know, even though both of their vocabularies are very different, um, Braxton, you know, he studied the music of Schoenberg, <laughs> Stockhausen, and another number of other people, as well as a lot of um, so-called jazz musicians and things like that, people like Duke Ellington, along that same period. So his music also integrated um, all of his influences and as, as did Charles Mingus's music and many of the other um, composer performers who have c come up uh, in this tradition anyway. And so uh, for me, I see myself as kind of following in that tradition. I don't want to, I mean, or I could say sort of like an extension of that, you know what I mean? I'm basically looking to develop my own compositional voice and doing the same thing um, that these people have done. And so um, people like Kevin Norton and Pete Jarvis and all of those people have helped me kind of tapped um, a little bit more into that. Michelle Rosewoman is another uh, another huge, huge figure um, and why I'm even playing music or why I'm even composing music. I mean, I've studied composition with her um, a number of times. And I remember back then I would write this very complex kind of music and that kind of thing. And then she said, well, why are you notating it this way? You could notate it this way. And then you, maybe you can integrate these things into it and, you know, really take from your life and put that into your music rather than only think conceptually. And that was the problem I had. You know, I, I guess I was maybe about 17, 18 years old at that time uh, where, 
you know, she basically told me, you know, just basically explore everything that you've learned and try to kind of integrate that all together. And so I credit her immensely for um, for teaching me about musicality and about writing, you know, rather, I mean, as opposed to being a musician, because being a musician is only one aspect of musicality, in my opinion. Sure. And so, um, so she's taught me a lot of things um, about that. So these are some of the pivotal figures who have... Um, got me on that road, you know, on on that way of thinking in terms of integrating um, all of your influences together, rather than being a so-called jazz musician or only exploring the jazz vocabulary. Uh, getting back to those seven pieces um, that I mentioned, I mean, they were all basically using so-called jazz vocabulary, uh, jazz harmonic vocabulary, and you know, the music would always swing and this and that, and there'd be like a occasional ballad every now and then but right around the time I got to my seventh composition I had enough basically I kind of got tired of I didn't want to just be a so-called jazz composer or anything like that and I don't want to fit within the stereotypical notion of what um, of how number one how an african-american composer is looked at as a jazz musician I didn't want to fit within that confine and so what I decided to do was to create um, which a, is how? What's that? Which is how? Well, basically, um, I think that the music has been marginalized. Um, I think a lot of the people who came before me, people like a Duke Ellington and and uh, people like Charles Mingus and people like that, I think still, like even to this day, I don't think their work is considered as quote-unquote serious as somebody like an Elliot Carter or other people like that. Now, I don't mean to, you know, I don't mean to express any kind of uh, political, I mean, kind of stance or anything, but this is just how I feel about where this music has gone in comparison to the so-called classical or the so or the concert musics and things like that. I mean, the people in the AACM, um, it's really, I mean, in my opinion, I mean, why did it take a member of the AACM to write about you know, for one thing, it's, it's really it's great that George Lewis has written the book A Power Stronger Than Itself on the AACM and, um, and experimentalism in America. Um, I think it's great that he wrote that book and everything, but at the same time, it's like, why weren't they given the just credit that they deserved for all the contributions that they made to this music, to creative music? And so... I don't see those people as jazz composers or anything like that, but yet I see people that are coming out of the creative music tradition. They're all kind of being marginalized into this one kind of area where, okay, well, they're, but, you know, they're not real composers. I mean, they write a piece and then they improvise on it, which I don't believe in that. You know, I think, I think it's all kind of integral. And in fact, improvisation to me is spontaneous composition. And so I don't really, for me, I'm looking to blur those lines, and so I didn't want to necessarily fit within the whole thing. Okay, well, you have to write a jazz song, and then you have to improvise on these chord changes, and you know, and then you go back to the head, the head solo's head kind of juncture of the music, which I respect greatly. But at the same time, that wasn't necessarily the only road that I wanted to take with my music. Right. Um, and so integrating. Um, many different compositional vocabularies as well as several non-Western concepts um, into my music starting from that seventh piece on um, it really gave me a, a, a chance to 
explore many different ways I can go um, conceptually when it came to a particular compositional language. Notice that you and and many people who I really respect kind of actively resist the use of the word jazz, and I always wonder. I don't have a strong opinion on this, I guess, but I always wonder if, to some degree, we aren't helping to marginalize and make the word jazz pejorative by the people who play music that I would consider jazz, struggling so hard not to be called jazz musicians. I mean, it seems like that is narrowing even further the focus of the music and making it. I'm not sure this is true because I'm mostly saying it off the cuff right now, but it could be making it an even narrower field rather than like my show is called the Jazz Session, so it's easy to find sure. on iTunes, right? Not, right. Not, not because there's only one kind of music that's on this show, you know? Exactly, I understand. <laughs> um, but but by the same token, I'm happy that it's called the Jazz Session because there are so many kinds of music that are on this show, right? And to me, that's that is what attracts me about this music that it is it is so large it is that Whitman-esque mm-hmm. you know contains mm-hmm. multitudes right and yet it has some character that element of risk and danger and momentary magic yes um, and so I so I guess all of this is like a sermon now I feel like I should pass a basket at the end of this but uh, so I guess like lead me to the question which is why do you personally why are you personally kind of resisting that word rather than trying to conform it or trying to to say i am also this or this is also what i do i'm not exactly rejecting the word um really i mean because in fact i consider myself a student of music so mm. the music is a lot bigger than i am anyway so i'm not here to basically attack the term or really sure you know kind of impose my definition on what that word means or anything because as i've said before um in the whole tradition of creative music, I don't think anyone really has thought of their work as jazz. Now, some people have. You know, there are some composer performers who have thought of their work as jazz, and that's great. You know, so for me, it's it's kind of all relative in the sense because um, I don't think Duke Ellington necessarily saw his work as being jazz when he was when he started composing his works, and I think that his compositions are just as important as somebody like an Igor Stravinsky or people like that. You know, I think that his body of works is just as important as like an Anton Webern. I think his, you know, so it's like for me, I think um, the most important thing of our musical situation nowadays is to um, to see that jazz has. I guess you could say, I don't want to say that it's it's been negated, but it has been um, 
what's special about this music is that um, in the whole tradition of this music, it is able to take from many different sources, um, African sources, uh, sources from the African diaspora, the Indian diaspora, I mean, many, several different diaspora. Um, this music, I could say, borrows heavily from all kinds of aspects of, you know, many different musics throughout the entire world. And so, um, for me, that's the beautiful thing about this music. And it has existed, you know, for, you know, since, um, you know what I mean? We have to also remember that creative music didn't start in America necessarily. I mean, we have to go, I mean, you would think that the first, the first sounds that were made by m men and women were improvisational. I mean, they were creative, you know, so we have to understand also that there is a creative tradition that exists in many different cultures, in all cultures throughout this world. I mean, there's, there's a creative tradition that exists, you know, there. So it's like to say that creative music started in America would be not correct as far as I'm concerned. Um, and yet, a lot of what's happening um, in terms of American culture and creative music, we do find that it's taking from many different things that were learned over the past hundred years and then some, um, and all of these things are applied. And now suddenly we're in a generation now where so many composer performers who studied uh, so-called jazz and who have... Um, checked out many different kinds of music and that kind of thing a lot of a lot of us people in my generation we all are interested in exploring every aspect of music that was a part of our musical makeup and groups such as the acm m based the black artist group a uh, number of other groups that came uh from the 60s all the way through the 90s um have influenced us in that way and so i mean I'm, i recall a um thing that Steve Coleman or somebody said um, in an interview I've read maybe about 10, 15 years ago where he said, well, we were interested in doing something that was relevant to our time as opposed to something that was done in another time. Right. And I think that what he meant by that was that we are interested in taking things that we've learned, you know, in our life, in our actual life from life experience and that kind of thing, coupled with um, the music that, you know, the music that they're interested in exploring and that sort of thing. I think what's happening here is that we are interested in doing something that is within our time and at the same time not negating any other aspect of the music. Now, this sure. is where I fall in. I mean, I, I like to think of myself as a transidiomatic musician. And that, to me, means that there's no rejection of styles. There's no opposition to um, a certain kind of vocabulary. Now, I, I can say that I can just as well say I'm a student of music or I can say I'm a jazz musician who happens to play all of these other styles and everything. Right. Or, I, you know, I can, I'm any kind of musician, really. Yeah. So um, well, here, let me to, to continue to play I, this role that I'm playing. Yeah. Uh, I heard someone much smarter than I, and I can't remember who, say, if you tell me you don't like jazz, then I will ask you what kind of music you do like, and I will play you some jazz that sounds like that. And which I, I've always thought, like, uh, you always see on, on blogs now in the jazz blogosphere that uh, th there was a running series of posts about a year or two years ago of good music to play f at, to introduce people who say they, they don't know jazz or don't like jazz because it's so broad. So 
my I guess one of one of my personal issues is that since this music, since the music that I consider jazz, and I don't even know what that means either, but is is so broad. Yet it is the case that almost all of my friends are not jazz people. But I can play them things that have by artists who've been on my show and they say, Oh, that's well that's jazz too. Now, I can see a very clear argument, and I kind of support this argument, for just saying, well, no, it's just music. Like, it's right. all just music. Yes. However, I'm also aware that human beings categorize things. Well, we, could, we could easily say everything around us is just matter. Right. That's true, but it's useful for me to say this is a bottle of water, this is a microphone, this is a recorder, this is a table. Yes. It's useful for me to be able to group my world into things I can kind of make some sense out of. Yeah. And in the same way, it's... There's creative improvisation in country music, too. Yes, there is. But we could... But I think most people would be able to hear at least some kind of difference between the the average, the mean of the sound of country music and maybe the average sound of what we would might more traditionally consider creative improvised music like we'd see in the New York scene here. Mm-hmm. And I guess I wonder why we can't... What's... What's wrong with that? Why we can't also advocate on behalf of making more people aware that they shouldn't just write off jazz because it contains so much. At the same time as we say, you know, we're just into supporting good music, whatever, wherever it comes from. I feel like we're losing some people who might listen to jazz because all of the people who make music that might interest them say, well, I'm not a jazz musician, I'm just a... Musician, I just play music. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that was a clear point, but if you were able to follow it, I'd be interested in hearing your take on it. Sure. I mean, the thing is, is that as I've as I've pointed out, um, there's a creative tradition everywhere, um, and has been since the beginning of time, I think. And so, once that's understood, then I think we're able to kind of dispense with the whole idea of separating it. Mm. Um, and so if it's understood on a global level, let's say, um, let's talk about America and Europe just specifically because these are the two areas in which I mostly deal. Um, so we have to know that there are not only creative traditions that exist you know, since the beginning of time, but there's also creative traditions that exist with men and women. Now, in European music, we don't really hear much of um, women improvisers in that situation. And a- actually, Anthony Braxton writes a very interesting um, article on this in this, his uh, Triaxium writings, where he talks about um, the creative woman and how how that has been underexplored and that kind of thing. And I should say underrespected. Um, on some level, but um, and in this music, in so-called jazz or creative music in America, um, this also this is starting to get more and more explored. But only recently, I mean, we don't hear much of you know any women improvisers except for vocalists during the um, 1930s, 1940s. For example, the pianist. Uh, and composer Lil Hardin, for example, who worked in Louis Armstrong's group um, during the uh, 1920s. I mean, we don't really hear much about how much she has contributed to the piano language of improvisation. We don't hear much about that. Or, you know, we don't, I mean, 
we don't hear a lot of talk about what Mary Lou Williams has contributed uh, to this music at all. I mean, we don't, so we don't hear much of anything about that. So in terms of, you know, we're not only talking about tradition, but we're also talking about just humanity in general. Um, and once all of these sects get explored, you know, let's say the creative woman and, you know, or the woman, the African-American woman composers, of America. We don't hear much of that either. We don't hear much about, you know, what what has been going on especially in the creative music area. We don't hear much about that either. So I think once all of this stuff becomes explored and once this information becomes um more available, um I think I think that we'll be able to get a better grasp on um on the music in general just in terms of uh, what we're talking about. So really the key here is information. Well, I don't and, disagree with anything being, you said, except that we know that that isn't the truth of now. Right. Like we may get to that Not place now. where people understand. R- right. And I hope we do, and I think we should work toward it. Hi. I'm also interviewing Tyshawn's dog. I'll just point out. Um, we may... Uh, what's your dog's name? Om. Om? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You have no idea how cool a name you have, do you? That's all right. <laughs> Uh, so Om and I were wondering, so since the, uh, we know that that idea of global understanding of non-categorized music is not, is not the truth now. And right. Sen- and since it is not now, that's, that's kind of where, why I feel like we're, we're missing an opportunity to tell people about people who just write off jazz because to them it is only like, Sure. We're missing a chance to tell all those people look at what it contains. Mhm. Well, and this is I feel like if we try to get to the if we try to say rather than doing that what we should do is make everybody understand that all music is music. Sure. Right, that's great. There's a lot of stuff we're going to have to take care of before that happens yes. probably. <laughs> and my guess is we'll both be old men having this conversation here in Brooklyn before that day comes if it comes. It's right. much more likely our grandkids will be having this conversation. Um, so what do we do now well, the, the to bring thing, the people in? Well, what I wanted to say was that um, what I was going to get to is that I think that as musicians, I think it is very important and only maybe, at, say, in the last 50, 60 years have we seen any publications by the musicians themselves who write exactly what the music is in their own terms. Mm. Um and I'd like to maybe see more of that. And in fact, I'm looking to do that for myself in terms of publishing any, any work of mine that discusses my music in my own terms and what it brings in and what I hope to bring in in the future and that kind of thing. Because I can always learn from, you know, many different music. So I'm never going to stop learning about that. So, sure. I mean, not to so, put you on the spot, but can no, you think of any particular works that you're you're thinking of right now when you when you give the example? Well, I mean, I, I hope to, for example, put out a um, put out a set of composition notes as have uh, predecessors before me. Carl Stockhausen has done this. Uh, Anthony Braxton has done this. Um, let's see, and which is like a you mean a, a score with kind of details about how you arrived at it and. Yeah, basically, yeah, basically, um, the exploration of the compositions themselves, but in text form and being able to explain, um, what goes into the making of the music, what goes into the conceptualization behind the music and a number of other things. Um, I'm hoping to publish something like that. And I think, um, we musicians need to get to a point where we're going to be able to do that and 
basically um, disseminate this information um, to the public and to the people and for those who are interested in our work. I think it's very important that um, the work gets understood in our terms because it I'm, in my opinion, this really hasn't been done enough um, in the tradition of American creative improvised music. Um, you know, it was always written about or something, and that's great. You know, that's it's a really great thing. But in terms of the actual compositions themselves and the actual work, um, I think it is just as important that we also come up with a set of materials of our own that explain this in greater depth and everything, which I think would give the listener a greater understanding of what the work is actually about and what social, metaphysical, or otherwise, whatever concerns that the music involves, mm. I think that is also just as important. And I think if we're able to have more opportunities like this to be able to do an interview such as the one we're doing now, where I'm able to discuss that kind of information, I think that um, the, the overall acceptance of the music, I think, will change as a result of that. Can you cite examples of musicians who've done what you're describing in the past from the kind of American creative improvised music um, To have genre? written composition notes? Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, um, as far as I know, um, Anthony Braxton has published his own you know, books course, on, right. on music. And if, sure. uh, not only has he published his composition notes, but he's also published Triaxium Writings, which talks about the philosophical aspects um, of the work and how he was able to conceptualize uh, different compositions and also what goes into his whole musical makeup just mm -hmm. in terms of his social aesthetics or, let's say, political aesthetics and all of these different things are discussed in that series of books. Now, this is the only... Um, example of this that I know of, just in terms of um, any kind of American music. I mean, I know other people must have done this, I mean, in the past, you know, with, with their own stuff, but I don't really see much about it or hear much talk about this kind of material, so I'm hoping to get access to as much of that material as so I can. So one, 
we one one person we can come up with in the in the history of this music. That, yeah, I for, think that proves your point that there needs to be for now more yeah. of it. Yeah, I think I think I think there needs to be a lot more uh, yeah. written on the work. I mean, especially um, especially again, I'm going to return to an earlier thing as an African American composer. I think it's important that. Um, the work is discussed on our terms because, as I said before, I don't want to end up in a place where my music is marginalized and I'm being considered this jazz guy or whatever because that's happened, actually. And that has started to happen until very recently where I've started um, making available a lot of the work that I do that's not jazz and that kind of thing. And by doing that... I think I was able to change some opinions of some people. Um, for example, my quartet, like just the word quartet in itself right. kind of implies <laughs> that, you know, they're going to hear some jazz or something. Right, and, jazz or chamber music. Yeah, yeah, you know, and then they come into the situation and then like you see all these bells and timpani and gongs and bass drums and a number of other things on the stage. And it's like, wait a minute, this wasn't, you know, I mean, but at the same time, like a good friend of mine disclosed to me some information that, um, he was on this blog once and was telling me, yeah, well, you know, I've posted something about you in there. And then these people basically retorted to me that you're nothing but jazz and this and that. And all, all you're going to be playing is jazz. And by virtue of the fact, now check this out, by virtue of the fact that I'm African-American, they were going to make that judgment against me. You know, now, what have I done to these people? <laughs> you know, I haven't, I haven't done anything, you know, but, but yet... You know, people people will think what they think, and they will say what they're going to say, and so and I respect that. But at the same time, I'm not going to be pressured into playing that kind of game or into thinking on that level. You know, by saying, okay, well, by being a black musician and by experiencing creative, improvised music in a similar fashion that other African American composer performers before me have explored. You know, like. Am I only going to be limited to that? Like mm. I don't, I don't see myself as only being limited to anything. <laughs> you know, I, I like to explore as much as possible, uh, whatever genre or culture, because I'm interested in everything, and I like to think that I have more. I guess you could say that I celebrate more of a world aesthetic, or cultural aesthetic, or multicultural aesthetic, um, if I could put it that way, because there's so much music out here in the world now that it's impossible to explore every single thing. But yeah. At the same time, I don't see myself really fitting, you know, in that category and playing that whole game. Like where, okay, you're an African-American, you play jazz, so this is what you have to continue to play for the rest of your life. No, I mean, uh, that's not, you know, that's something that I never was interested in, um, only exploring that. Have you had a chance to play your music in, uh, you know, n not in a traditional jazz setting, so not in a jazz club, but in uh, concert halls to modern classical fans or in uh, whatever other random places where it's not just people whose brains are kind of geared to go see a jazz show? No. And um, this also ties into the thing I was talking about earlier to some level because um, 
I've been fortunate to be um, I'm fortunate to be able to participate in next year's Ice Lab project with the International Contemporary Ensemble. Okay. Where uh, I've been commissioned to write a work um, for, I think, eight members um, of this ensemble and everything, and I'm looking forward to exploring Where will that. that be performed? This will be performed in a um, performance space, I think, in the Upper West Side or somewhere. Okay. Um, but... Very, very rarely does my music ever get performed in such a context. Um, the thing that's closest to that that I could think of in terms of where my own music has been played is roulette. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which, you know, for me is a, is an awesome concert space. They treat you really well there, that kind of thing. And, you know, I mean, that's the only kind of situation that I can think of that, you know, where my music that is so-called not jazz has been really performed. I mean... It, it seems really like a shame. A, I mean, it, see, it seems. Well, I mean, I, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but it it would be wonderful to kind of prove your point, and I think it would be easy to prove your point by just taking your music totally out of the context of anything we might associate with jazz and putting it in a room of totally different people, just yes. to say, here, you know, here I am, and here's other music. People who wouldn't walk in with preconceptions. I mean, I saw you. I've seen your band at Roulette. Right. And I mean it was it was jaw dropping. It was amazing. Thank you. But as I look around the room, you know, like I know seventy percent of the people who sure. are sitting around yes. me mm-hmm. and I'm gonna see them the next night at Cornelia Street or I'm gonna see them the next night at you know, wherever I'm gonna see them. Right. Uh and I was when I the last time I saw you at Roulette, I was thinking, Man, this this would be so awesome if we were like in a I don't know, a hall at Juilliard or in a just someplace. I don't even know where all yeah. the other cool performance places are that aren't jazz. But in one of those places it would be great. You know, to hear this music and have people exposed mm-hmm. exposed to it to help kind of start breaking down those yeah. walls. Well, sometimes you know, I don't. I it's hard for me to say that. It's hard for me to say if it is a problem in my music that kind of prevents that from even happening because I had a panel discussion uh, with Chamber Music America, I'd say maybe about six seven months ago, where we talked about this whole whole thing of genre bending and eliminating genre from the work and. Uh, one of the one of the things I've noticed is that the other two composers who I have a great deal of respect for uh, for their work, their music gets performed in you know like really cool performance spaces and you know places like that. Whereas something like a creative improvised music, like kind of what I'm doing or whatever, only gets limited to be performed in clubs or performance spaces that you know that more or less consists of audience members interested in creative music right and to me that's a problem because i mean as much as i like to think that my music is for everybody and it's open for anybody to listen to um it's still limited in that way i don't know if it's because of lack i mean i don't i don't know if it's because of the music itself i mean i can only compose what i'm hearing you know and i can only write what you know what suits my interests you sure. know so it's like if i don't get the same kind of opportunities as other people to present concert music even though my concert can my music can sound very similar to that since so be it i mean i have to keep writing and i have to keep composing and you know just kind of make make an opportunity happen yeah uh, for myself and i think that's where i see myself going now um you know recently i've done a concert of um my chamber works at a at my master's thesis concert at Wesleyan University now, but that's a different context because it wasn't exactly 
a concert per se like you know people have to buy tickets and you know this kind of thing i mean it was done through the university and i mean that was a fun experience and what that told me was that um well yeah i mean you have this body of works that you know that don't necessarily even though there's improvisation in it it doesn't fit within the so-called jazz paradigm like i can't go and perform the composition homograph two for seven for mixed septet or whatever i can't go and play that piece let's say like at a um at a cornelia street or somewhere right. like that i mean it's not really the so-called appropriate venue you know to do that and frankly i don't think a lot of people would be into that <laughs> you know what i mean like at, at least to my understanding um so it's like you almost you almost got to pick your opportunities in which you'll present whatever it is you want to present and at the same time um I'm wondering, well, why why is that? Why why isn't it that I have an opportunity to present something at a place like Merkin Hall or Lincoln Center or all of these really, you know, cool venues where this music can get played to the best level possible? I just don't, you know, I don't I don't see what the deal is with that. But yeah. I guess, you know, I guess I'll just keep going and, you know, hopefully something will come to me, but I mean, I got to do what I believe in, and yeah. that's that's really what it comes down to. So, well, I think it's going to be uh, I think it's going to be you in specific, and people like you who who make that happen. My guest is Tyshawn Sori, and uh, man, I really I have a great deal of respect for you and your music, and I really love your music too. And uh, thank, thank you for you. taking the time to be on the show. Thank you. So there you have it. Tyshawn Sori, we made it. The curse is broken. Now, here's the deal. I can't say enough times. Well, I probably could actually say too many times, really, if we're going to split hairs about it. But in any case, I need you, 
now, immediately, to go to thejazzsession.com and become a member. There is no more time to waste. I feel like I'm William Shatnering this whole pitch. But here it is. Go right now to thejazzsession.com slash join and join for the love of God because this show is going to hit 300 on Thursday if you're listening to this in real time, August 11th, 2011. I need 100 members by that time and I have 80 right now. Go join, okay? Just do it. You'll feel good, I'll feel good, everybody will feel good. In the meanwhile, turn off all this junk and go out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and then come back next time for the 300th conversation about jazz, and it's a biggie, on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.